When Fred arrived at the pearly gates, there was hardly any line, and he didn't have to wait more than a few minutes before his interview. Naturally, he was a little bit nervous as he wanted to get past the gates into heaven. There at the gate was an angelic being with a clipboard in hand, got some preliminary information from Fred, his name and some other details. And then he said to Fred, hey, we can expedite the process. Fred, can you tell me a time in your life when you did something that was sacrificial for others? Fred stops, he thinks. He goes, oh yeah, I got it. He said, one day, I was walking down the road and I saw this biker type dude beating up a little old lady. He was smacking her around. It was horrible. So I ran up and just to get the biker's attention, I kicked over his motorcycle. Then I ran over to him and I kicked him in the shin. As I kicked him in the shin, I said to the little lady, run and get help. Then I pulled back and I gave him the best punch I could give him right in his gut. The angel's going, wow, that's quite a story. So taking back up the clipboard, the angel says, and can you tell me, when did this happen? Fred looked at his watch and said, oh, two or three minutes ago. <laughs> Fred had just undergone a major transition in just a few minutes. And as you're turning to Revelation chapter 11, we are about to do the same. Beginning in chapter 10, we have an interlude. Remember the angel that comes down from heaven, and there will be seven thunders that utter their voices. And John was about to write, and he was commanded not to write. So there will be seven judgments in the tribulation period that we don't know yet what exactly they will be. And then after the vision given to John in Revelation 10, we went over to chapter 11. There we were introduced to two witnesses. Not named, but that wasn't the important thing. How were they energized? And we studied about them and their ministry for three and a half years prophesying, looking at the second half of the tribulation period or the great tribulation, if you will. Now we are coming down to 11:15 through 19 to study the seventh trumpet judgment. We had the sixth trumpet judgment back in chapter 9. Now we are about to take a look at the seventh trumpet judgment. Remember the order? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We're hastening toward the middle of the tribulation and some things that are significant are about to occur. But here's my question for you. Before I read the text, why does God give us Bible prophecy? Why does God give us Bible prophecy? Let me begin reading here, chapter 11, verse 15. And when the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 angels who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants to prophets and the saints and those who fear your name small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Let's uh, pause for a moment and uh, talk to the author of the book before we move on. Father, I, I thank you. We're moving through the book of Revelation. This has really been quite, quite a study. Understanding your work past, present, and future. We thank you that you control all things and even the timing of the tribulation period. So today as we are about to embark upon the seventh trumpet judgment, give us enlightenment. May the sweet spirit of God guide us into the truth that is before us today. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 15 simply begins, then the seventh angel sounded. There are, are similarities between the seventh trumpet uh, that we have before us and the seventh seal. There is no immediate judgment with both of those. But notice there's a contrast as well. Verse 15, and there were loud voices in heaven. Do you recall when the seventh seal was open, what we had? 30 minutes of silence. It was calm before the storm. But here, loud voices in heaven. Who, who makes the loud noise? Uh, perhaps it's a group. <laughs> uh, maybe it's the four living beings, 24 elders and angels because they're responding now to the thought that the kingdom is just about here. So there is an excitement. Our text says, and I want to talk about our text here, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The majority of Greek manuscripts do not have the plural kingdoms, but the singular kingdom. And you might stop and pause and ask, why is that important? Although there are many kingdoms in the world, ultimately the kingdom of this world belongs to Satan. Let me just explain this to you in greater detail. Uh, would you turn to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew chapter 4. This book is written predominantly to Jews. More quotes here from the Old Testament than any other gospel account. And in chapter 4, Jesus has just finished fasting and praying. And Satan comes to entice him. 
Now down in verse 8 again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms. And notice here it's plural. See, looking at all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's what Satan has been after all along is to be worshipped. Luke's parallel account in chapter 4 tells us the detail that Satan tells Jesus that he has the authority to give him those things. So Satan is the ruler of this world. 1 John 5.19 puts it this way. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Although there are many kingdoms, Satan is in control of the kingdom, if you will, of this world. I came upon a, an astute quote by Thomas. This is what he writes. The whole theme of Revelation is the purging of evil from the world so that it can become the domain of the king of kings. Revelation 19.16. Only a physical kingdom on earth will satisfy this. That's right. There is a purging that has taken place and ultimately the one who will rule over the world, Jesus Christ, is coming and will take back what rightfully belongs to him. Think about how this all began. As Jesus commences his ministry, uh, how did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. But there was a kingdom. Likewise, you had two brothers, James and John. In conjunction with their mother, they come to Jesus. And what do they want? They desire to sit on Jesus' left and right where? In the kingdom. Yes, it will be an earthly, physical kingdom. And we're seeing now the movement towards those things. The kingdom of this world, notice, has become. Very intriguing here. This is proleptic. It does not occur chronologically here. In other words, although the kingdom is future to this time, Revelation chapter 20, it's described as already here. See, from God's point of view, it's already done. Very fascinating. So not only here has the kingdom become, you know, that of Christ, but it goes on to say, and he shall reign forever and ever. When Jesus comes back the second time, Revelation 19, and he puts down his enemies, he will then establish his kingdom, and if you will, that's really the commencement, if you will, of eternity with that millennial reign. Now, down here in verse 16, the anticipation of heaven builds. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their throne fell on their faces and worshiped God. The 24 elders, I believe, representing the church now in heaven because the rapture has occurred, give worship to God or Jesus six times. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 10, 5, 8, 5, 14, 7, 11, 11, 16, and 19, 4. 
But only, note this, only in Revelation 7:11 and here do we have the phrase added, fell on their faces. This displays a dramatic act of reverence. And by the way, others have done this before. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on a high mountain, and there is transfigured before them. In essence, Christ shows those three who would suffer much his glory. But who was there? Moses and Elijah, and they got to see Jesus' glory as well. And Peter, thinking, I think, biblically in part, says, can we set up three tabernacles? One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Perhaps going back to Zechariah chapter 14, in verse 16, speaking about the future Feast of Tabernacles. The problem, Peter equates Jesus with Moses and Elijah. So the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. What did the disciples do? They fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. It's appropriate that as the Almighty is being worshipped, that we fall on our faces before him. In Luke chapter 5, verse 12, and it happened when he was in a certain city, this is Jesus, that behold a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face, that is, the leper, and implored him, saying, now notice the word, Lord, I, I believe he's understanding that Jesus is God. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And then later, in the book of Luke, chapter 17, Jesus heals ten lepers. But as you know, only one comes back to give him glory. Luke 17, 16, and fell down, this is the one leper, on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. We need to get our arms around the concept that it is better to bow in worship now because one day everyone will be forced to bow before Jesus. Let this mind be in you, writes Paul, Philippians 2, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a servant, a slave, and being humbled, See, he became like a man, and he was obedient to death. Even the death of the cross, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Hear that every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The worship in heaven will be spectacular because there's the acknowledgement of who the Father and the Son are. Now down in verse 17, the elders are saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. Notice the description. Lord God Almighty. 
That is a reference to God the Father. Later in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, we see that there's no future temple in heaven. But we'll have the Lord God Almighty there, see the Father and the Lamb, because see, they are the temple. But you see the distinction, Father and Son? Father is called Lord God Almighty. This term Almighty from pas, which means all and kreteo, to hold. The idea is to hold firmly. It's the concept here to have all strength or to hold all or everything. That's who the Almighty is. He possesses all things. He is all powerful. And then the eternality of the Father is praised. He is described here as the one who is presently. God is with us. Who was the continuous action in past time showing that God has forever existed and who is to come the future tense here. Similar to Revelation chapter 1 in verse 8. So why is the eternality of God praised? Because you have taken your great power and reigned. Again, this is proleptic. Speaking of something as if it's done, but yet it occurs in the future. The seven bowls have not yet been poured out. So it's still future that Christ will reign, but it's as good as done. The Verb here, have taken, is in the perfect tense. It means that he's taken it in the past with the results continuing. The concept here is that God has always had a permanence of control. See, you have taken your great power. Here it's dunamis, speaking of ability. God is able to control the universe because of his very nature, who he is. Now, what is the response to the unsaved at this point as you're coming down to verse 18? The nations were angry and your wrath has come. Wow. So the nations are upset at what Christ will do. This uh, takes us back to the book of Psalms. Would you turn it with me, please? Psalm 2. Perhaps a psalm that you are familiar with. And we'll look at verses 1 through 6 together because the background of what is being cited in Revelation chapter 11 goes back to the book of Psalms. Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot? A vain thing. You hear the familiarity now? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers have taken uh, counsel together against the Lord. That's the Father. Notice the, the lettering, capital L-O-R-D, the eternal God. And against his anointed, that's Jesus Christ saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. God's response, verse four. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king. See, it's a reference to Christ during the millennial kingdom. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion because Jesus Christ will rule. He will reign from 
Jerusalem. So come back to Revelation 11. So the nations, they're angry. God's wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. Another proleptic statement. The unsaved will not be judged until the great white throne judgment. Uh, turn with me there. We're just going to touch on this briefly uh, because Lord willing, we'll look at the passage in detail in, in the future. Revelation chapter 20. The millennium has come and now the words, then I saw. By the way, when you move toward the end of the book, there are the clue that there is another vision given. Then I saw, it's Kaedon from the Greek, a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. What happens to the heaven and the earth after the millennial kingdom is torched? Second Peter tells us that it's burned up. So no one has a place to hide is the idea. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, Notice your posture, standing before God or before the throne, as some manuscripts say. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Your works will testify that they did not know God. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works, even for the unsaved. Christ had paid the price because when Jesus shed his blood it was for all people of all times but yet to reject that gift means the wrath of God will abide on you forever then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death first death physical second death eternal separation God and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire so the time of the dead has come that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants the prophets and the saints back here in Revelation chapter 11 uh, down in verse 18 notice that that you should reward your servants the prophets and the saints question when will the old testament saints be resurrected i believe old testament and the new are similar in the sense of absent from the body as second corinthians 5 8 present with the lord but yet the body would be resurrected to join the soul and the spirit now would you turn with me to isaiah chapter 26 book of isaiah chapter 26 for a great insight into the timing of the resurrection you have to remember what was promised to the old testament saint the kingdom so when is the kingdom going to be established after the tribulation period so the old testament dead saint will be raised after the tribulation so they can go into the millennial kingdom. Notice Isaiah writes, this is 26, beginning in verse 19. Your dead shall live. Sound like resurrection? Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. 
For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Notice now the directive. Come, my people. See the saints. Enter your chambers, a euphemism for death, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves as it were for a little moment. And notice the end of verse 20. Until the indignation, that's the tribulation, the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish whom? And I, I, I am so intrigued by this statement because throughout the book of Revelation, we keep seeing that the judgments are against the inhabitants of the earth. The earth dwellers, those who say, this world is my home. To punish the inhabitants of the earth. Isn't that fascinating for their iniquity? During the tribulation period, that's exactly what has taken place. God's wrath is released against the inhabitants of the earth. So, the Old Testament saint will be resurrected after the tribulation to be given a glorified body so that they can enjoy that kingdom that was promised to them. Back in verse 18, the end of the verse, or close to the end, and these who fear your name, small and great, now, the word and there, the uh, Greek conjunction chi, can be translated here even in the sense of sense. So even those who fear your name, small and great. See, I believe pointing back to the prophets and the servants, these are the ones who are going to get their reward after the tribulation and should destroy those who what? Destroy the earth. Warren Wiersbe says, how ironic that these people live for the earth and its pleasures, yet at the same time are destroying the very earth that they worship. How true. Now that we've been coming through this passage, what's our first point right here? Celebrate Christ's future kingdom with its benefits. I'll say that one more time. Celebrate Christ's future kingdom with his benefits. That's 15 through 18. Again, these things are spoken of proleptically as, as if they are already done. You, child of God, are as good as in the kingdom of God already. It's true. And there will be many benefits that will be given to the saints, those who have sacrificed particularly for their service for their Lord. So celebrate even now Christ's future kingdom with his benefits. And then number two, endure hardship because God fulfills his promises. Remember to whom this book is written, the seven churches, many of whom were enduring persecution so what do we need to know as we're going through a hardship we need to endure it because God fulfills his promise and God is so good to give us encouragement along the journey verse 19 then the temple of God was opened in heaven a reminder to God's people to hold on because they will soon beware in his presence and the text goes on to say and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple now this is not the missing ark that we read about from the old testament in the non-protestant bible 
2 Maccabees 2, 4 through 8, says that Jeremiah hid the ark in a cave at Mount Sinai. This is the heavenly ark. It is a reminder to the faithful of God's presence in heaven and also a warning to the earth dwellers that this is where the judgment is coming from. And to close out our portion of scripture, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. This is similar to the seventh seal judgment back in chapter 8 and verse 5, and is similar to the future seventh bowl judgment. That'll be chapter 16 in verse 18. So here's the question again. Why does God give us Bible prophecy? And to answer that, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, think about who's writing this account about the transfiguration. It was Peter. See, God was so gracious to Paul. Paul would suffer much. So what did God do? He caught him up to the third heaven, past the clouds, past the stars, the sun, the moon, into heaven proper. Why? Because Paul needed to be encouraged to finish his journey. Similarly, God takes Peter, James, and John through the person of Jesus Christ to the Mount of Transfiguration to see Christ's glory. Why? They would suffer much as well. Now notice what Peter writes for us. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Not a bunch of fables here. Peter is saying this is the real deal. This is what I have observed firsthand. And he's referring to the time that he, with the other two, were taken on that high mountain there with Moses and Elijah to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Those three men needed to be encouraged that they would share in that future glory. Because one day when we see him, we will be like him. Verse 17 here in 2 Peter 1, For he received from God the Father honor and glory. Yes, Jesus did. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father was pleased with the son, not only at the baptism in Matthew chapter 3, but again at the transfiguration. And that time the words were added, hear him. Verse 18. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on a holy mountain. No wonder why they fell on their faces. Verse 19. And so we have, notice the verb, we have. It's a present tense verb. Right now, Peter says we have. And by the way, you and I still have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns, most likely a reference to the rapture, and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Let's stop and think about that. We should be greatly concerned when a movement takes a Bible, chains it to the pulpit, and says it's only for the priest to interpret. 
or you think of Charles Russell and the Russellites. We know them today as the Jehovah Witnesses. And they believe that they are the only ones who can interpret the Bible. So what did they do back at the year I was born, 1961? They wrote their own Bible, trying to edit out as much as possible where the deity of Christ is given. I want you to understand the scripture. We all who know Christ have the spirit of truth living within. Yes, you need pastors and teachers to equip you for the work of ministry, but you are able because the spirit of God turns on the light. We call it illumination that you can understand the scripture also. Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Inspiration is theopneustos. God breathed in the same way that God breathed into man and became a living being. Similarly, God breathed into the scriptures and it's a living book. Notice this, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Similarly, over in the book of Acts, as a, a ship was moved by the wind, these men were moved by the Spirit of God to pen exactly what they gave. No fables here, but the living word, the eternal word. So what have we learned? To sum it up, Two points. Celebrate Christ's future kingdom with its benefits. So many children of God get caught up with the here and now and they forget what's coming to us. Often the scripture speaks of future events in the past time. Why? Because Christ's second coming is assured. That future kingdom is already as good as done. And the benefits, the perks we get from walking with our God will be doled out to us throughout that kingdom period. What a great privilege. Can anything in this world compare with the glory and the rewards that we will receive in the future? So celebrate Christ's future kingdom with his benefits and do it now. Thank God by faith these things belong to you and me. And then along this journey, as Christ had to face Satan and all the temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life hurled at him, we also are going to have to endure. So endure hardship because God fulfills his promises. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. Peter, James, and John saw the glory of God. Why? Because they would endure much for the cause of Christ. But yet you and I have a completed word before us today from Genesis to Revelation that encourages our hearts that what God starts, he will complete, he will finish, and that includes you and me. Our citizenship is in heaven. So therefore, as this world system is against us because it's against Christ, it hated him first, it's going to hate us too. Whatever is Th thrown at us don't be discouraged why because we know that the promises of God will be fulfilled and a time of the rapture our lowly body will be conformed to his glorious body will then child of God enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ in the tribulation while the inhabitants of the earth faces wrath when Christ comes back the second time in Revelation 19 we'll be following him continually following him. 
He'll put down his enemies. He'll establish his kingdom as was promised to various churches in Revelation 2 and 3. We shall share in Christ's reign. So endure whatever comes your way because the rewards are coming. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Your word is powerful. It's alive. It transforms us now and it can be trusted. I thank you so much, Lord, as we think about your word that this kingdom is as good as established. That their day will come when we will rule and reign with Christ and our Messiah will parcel out rewards to us at that time. So, Lord, in the interim, may we endure hardships. You always fulfill your promises. The word of God cannot be broken according to Jesus. So, Lord, may we, may we with great confidence and boldness move forward knowing that the promises will be fulfilled and you'll complete in us what you started. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.